prep just in case I have to take my jacket. All right, so last week we had a message, and that message was titled Diffusing Discontentment. That was Joshua chapter 18, verses six, uh, 2 through 6. And what we did is we kind of systematically took an approach at looking how the distribution of the promised land was taking place. Uh, up to that point, there had been two and a half tribes that had received inside the promised land their, their provision. And what we saw was there was this level of discontentment taking place. There was some stuff going on, um, some dissatisfaction with the way things had played out. And we have seven tribes still yet remaining to receive their inheritance. And what we saw was the fact that Joshua recognized what was going on, and he, he did this thing where he recentered and refocused the people. He drew them all to a place called Shiloh, which was the center of all of the tribes. And in drawing them to Shiloh, they set up the tabernacle. This is a symbol of, 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 of focusing on the Lord. And it was about setting up their understanding, their accountability to God redirecting them about why it was they were there. Why were they there? They were there to, to make that land holy. Their job was to drive out the inhabitants, the wickedness that was there to make that land holy. Now for you and I, on a spiritual level, our promised land is our faithful walk with God. It's a place of fellowship with God. And so what we're looking at here is the same edict is given to us. We're supposed to make ourselves holy, right? The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 1.15, it says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner, of conversation. So we're supposed to be dealing with wickedness in our own lives, recognizing things that we should remove, guess what, and dealing with them. We're to be sanctified, set apart for his use, emptied of sin, and surrendered to his will. And so what's happened is after recentering them, then Joshua kind of gets back to the job at hand. But now he's going to alter things. He's going to change his tactics, as opposed to him being the one that was going to designate the division of the land. Now he transfers that over to the people. And he says, hey, you guys are going to figure it out. You guys are going to decide how the land is divided. That way, the responsibility rests on their shoulders. And then what happened is if they were dissatisfied with what they'd received, he's going to go, hey, hey, you're the ones that decided, right? He's taking the responsibility off of him. Joshua's dealing with, the, uh, dealing with this by trusting the Lord using wisdom from God in order to deal with these, with these tribes. And we saw that this was a way to deal with the spirit of discontentment, right? And what we recognize that the strategies that we learn through so many of the things that we see in Scripture are for us to directly correlate to things that we can deal with. There's sometimes people that are discontented in our lives. I know we've never had anybody like that probably. But there are, will be, if you haven't experienced it, one day someone's going to come and they're going to be discontented. But there's also discontentment that takes place in our own hearts, right? And so what we look is the strategic way of kind of dealing with this, giving it to God. And what he did was he cast lots. He said, once you guys come back and you divide the land, then we're going to let God decide who gets what. And that took the responsibility off of him, but also gave God the final word, right? That was the whole goal. That was the thing that he was standing on in the beginning. He said, listen, let God have the final say. And in doing so, he could deal with this brewing discontentment that was taking place. And if we'll take a similar biblical approach when we deal with discontentment in our hearts and we let God have the final say in our lives, well, guess what? It's hard to argue if you've already said, listen, God, your way, I will accept it, I will receive it, and I will do it. And then you read God's word and he says, this is what you're supposed to do. Instead of going, well, I don't want to do. No. If you've already decided in your heart that God has the final say, whether we like it or not, we go, okay. Okay. Now, that's easy to say. It's easy to preach. It's easy to sing. It's a lot harder to live, right? Biblical application of this truth is one of the greatest ways for you and I to move forward and be successful in our Christian lives. Understand, God so many times is waiting to bless his children. 
God sits like this wanting to do something great in our lives, but he's waiting on us many times for us to be who it is that he's called us to be. <laughs> many times we're the hindrance. We're like, man, why is this not going on? Well, guess what? Many times we're just waiting on, on us. To be a Christian means to be Christ-like, okay? That means we look like Christ in the way that we handle situations, adversities, uh, challenges, whatever. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, does Christian, does Christ-like, does that describe us? When people look at our lives, do they go, wow, there's a picture of Christ, a little Christ? Well, hopefully it is. But today what we're going to do is we're going to have a contrast between two different biblical pictures. We're going to see an example of those that will be wholly dependent upon God, and we'll see those that are dependent upon, upon man. And we're going to look at the contrast between the two and sort of see where it is that we fit in, because the message this morning is titled, Which Picture Are You? So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we get together. Uh, Lord, I do pray that you'd help me to get out of the way. Uh, God, I know that so many times I can go back and listen to a message, and Lord, I can see where I get involved. And Lord, I am asking you, please, 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 would you remove the human element from this message? God, would you speak and preach to us, uh, Lord, the truth that you have revealed through your word using the, the Spirit of God and the Word of God to reveal a truth that we need to hear. Lord, help us to have ears to hear. And Lord, I pray that you help me above all. Lord, have ears to hear that the, the, the things that need to be changed in me or the things that be changed in us, God, that you'd help us to do it according to your spiritual truth. Thank you for who you are. Use today for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as we're going to pick up in verse 7, what we're going to be doing is continuing the instructions that Joshua started in 18.3. So verse 7, Joshua continues. He says, But the Levites have no part among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. And Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond Jordan on the east, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. So here we see this part where he says, The Levites have no part among you. Okay. Now it's important to understand what he's talking about. He's not talking about them being a part of the twelve, because they most certainly are. Okay. They come from the heritage or the lineage of Levi, who was the third son of Jacob. What he is referencing is not their heritage, but he's talking about what it is that they are going to receive, their earthly inheritance in the land of Canaan. So as we explore what's going on in verse number seven, there is a dramatic difference between what God provides and what this world does. And we'll see the comparison between the two. Let's first look at those that are dependent upon God. Verse seven says, but the Levites have no part among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. And so God makes no provision for the sons of Levi to have any earthly possession, no inheritance for them among their brethren. There's nothing that's to be theirs. Now, this is not their request. It isn't like the Levites are going, you know what, we're just selfless. This is just the way we feel like it should be. No, this is not. This is actually an edict that God gave them back in Numbers chapter 18, verses 20 through 24. You'll see it on your paper. It says, And the Lord spake unto Aaron, Thou shalt have no inheritance in their land. I want you to notice that word, their land. He's going, you guys are going to live there, but guess what? It's not even your land, okay? You guys are going to be there, but it's not yours. Neither shalt thou have any part among them, like they're a separate people. I am thy part and thine inheritance among the children of Israel. And behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tenth in Israel for an inheritance for their service, which they serve, even the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. Neither must the children of Israel henceforth from this time forward, he's saying, come nigh the tabernacle of the congregation, lest they bear sin and die. 
He's saying, listen, you guys are an intermediary. You're, you're interceding now on their behalf. But the Levites shall do the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that among the children of Israel they have no inheritance. But the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer as an heave offering unto the Lord, I have given to the Levites to inherit. Therefore I have said unto them, among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. They will be provided for by the people giving unto God. And God's going to provide their needs. Now, 27 years earlier than this point. This is when this was given, 27 years before we are today. And Joshua is simply implementing what it was that God directed him to do. But what we want to figure out is why do the Levites get this unique role? What is it that makes them separate? Why does God make this special provision for them? And what distinguished the Levites is what happened to them 20 years before those instructions were ever given. There had been a time, right, when Moses went up onto the mount. Now, he was gone for 40 days. He did it twice. But one of the times, he's gone for 40 days. And while he's gone, the people start looking around. And they're going, you know what? Dude, I'm bored. You bored? Yeah. Let's make a golden calf and have a party. What do you reckon? Yeah, let's do it. Woo! So they're just having their hooping and hollering, man. I can't imagine. They got the music cranking. It's thumping. And they're just having a blast. And Moses comes down, and he's got the Ten Commandments, right? The law of God that reveals sin. Hello? And he comes walking down, and he walks into the mess, and he's just like, are you kidding me? He's fired up, man. He takes those tablets. God just gave them to him, and he's like, bam, shatters them on the ground, and he goes in, and it's like, dude, it's on like Donkey Kong. He's like, man, this is like Royal Rumble. We're getting ready to get it on. And Moses goes in, and he confronts them, man, big time. And then he says this in Exodus 32, 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp, a man his dad's home, and everybody's scared, and said, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. Okay? So he yells this out. And here's the response. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. See, a line was drawn. Who is on the Lord's side? Right? And the Levite said, we are. We'll stand against our brethren. We were in the midst of all this, just like everybody else. But we see we're wrong, and we stand with God. And in taking this stand, what they're doing is they're choosing God over their brethren. The Levites are establishing themselves, setting themselves apart, right? That's what to sanctify means. They've set themselves apart. And in this act, what's cool is when you go back to Genesis 49 and you read Levi's story. He's cursed by his father for violence because he, he stood against God. And what these guys just did is they redeemed the name of their progenitor. And now they said, listen, no, we, no, 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 we don't stand against God. We stand with God. And here we go, boom, they get this new identity amongst the children of Israel because they made a, they made a choice. So now in order to understand why God says this, for the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance, we need to kind of understand who they are and what their role was kind of amongst their countrymen during much of the wilderness journey as well as now inside the promised land. These guys have been doing their job. They fulfilled their role that God gave them in the wilderness. They're caring for uh, the needs of, of the tabernacle. They are meeting the needs there. They are representing God with the people. They're dealing with the issues of the community. And what we see here is, as they were in the wilderness, their provisions that came to them was just like everybody else's provisions. The Israelites received this miraculous miracle bread that would come down from heaven, this manna, 
right? And they would, and man is this beautiful picture of Christ. It's round, representing eternity. It's lily white. And they would, in order to receive it, you had to bow down, you had to need to humble yourself. So there's all these beautiful things. So they would receive this, this God-provided food. Then they would drink their water, right? Their water was provided by rocks, right? God literally changed the rock, the water, and had it pour, 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 pour forth, the rock pour forth water. Man, that's hard to say. I could not get up. You got the gist. But the point is this, that was when they were in the wilderness and God provided miraculously. Now when they get into the promised land, things change. God still miraculously provides for them, but it's no longer with, with heavenly bread and it's no longer with rock water. Now, it's actually through the, 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 uh, the resources of this conquered cities. God's going to provide for them all their needs. But things have changed. It isn't just a matter of provision. Now Now they have to show up and actually do something. Because what you realize is the fact that they had to go. The Israelites had to show up on the battlefield. They couldn't say, well, we're going to wait back here at the border. And God, when you've got everything wiped out, we'll go enjoy the stuff. No, God's like, uh-uh-uh. No, I'll win the battles, but you better show up on the battlefield. But what's interesting as they go through this is the fact that, well, the, uh, the, the Levites are there, but the Levites aren't fighting. They aren't soldiers. Okay? Now, they're on the battlefield fulfilling their role, but they're not actually physically fighting. They're fighting a different battle. Right? They're fighting the spiritual battle, the unseen one, right? While this physical one's taking place, there's another battle happening. Joshua chapter 6, verses 8 through 9 show us that they're on the battlefield. It says, And it came to pass when Joshua had spoken unto the people that the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns, passed on before the Lord and blew with the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant, being carried by priests, of the Lord followed them. And the armed men, separate people, went before the priests, that blew with the trumpets, and the, re- and the rearward came after the ark, and the priests going on and blowing with trumpets. So we see that they are fulfilling their role on the battlefield, but they're not physically fighting. Again, they're fighting on a spiritual level, and this is where the real battles that matter, this is where they're won. Now, we get caught up on the physical because of what we see, but can I promise you that if you could pull back the layers, if you could pull back the veil and show you what's going on, in the spiritual battles that are happening around us all the time, we would be overwhelmed. God is protecting us from things that we do not even realize are there. There is a battle taking place. So 3,400 years ago, while the Israelites are out there on the battlefield and they're swinging swords and there's clanging and screaming and all that stuff going on, the priests are standing their ground. They're standing their ground. And God's fighting against evil with good. And so remember, these Old Testament pictures are always pointing to something. And so what we have to realize is the fact that, guess what? In our modern day and age, these spiritual battles are still taking place between the same combatants, the same forces, the forces of God against the forces of evil. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5 says this, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Okay? Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not physical but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Verse 5, casting down imaginations, right? Things in our minds, and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, things that, that go against God's word, and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You see, wars are still being waged between good and evil every single day. Every single day. Only now the battles are not so much on the surface. They're actually in the hearts and minds of humanity. People are struggling as we speak. And understand that God has called His children to the spiritual fight. 
We have been called to war. Every single one of us. Every day when we wake up. What does he tell us in Ephesians chapter 6? That we're supposed to be putting on the armor of God. Now that's not physical armor. It's spiritual armor for a spiritual war. Right? So you and I are supposed to be in place for a spiritual fight every day to fight against evil. And in this fight, God is the one who brings the victories. But he is calling us to fulfill our role on the battlefield. Right? And what we saw, the Levites set themselves apart. They sanctified themselves unto God so that they could fulfill this role. For you see, his provision of the spiritual inheritance for the Levites, it pictures something for you and I. Their service with and for God gave them this special, unique relationship with their Creator. Something very, very, very special. And it mirrors something that you and I are going to receive one day, an inheritance that we'll get in a new heaven and a new earth. Listen to this in Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. It said, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. Now there is a lot of speculation between theologians of who these 24 elders are. People will think, man, you know what? They are, they're angels. Or they'll think they're, they're Jewish uh, you know, uh, 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 patriarchs. And I'm going to tell you what I think, who I think they are. I think it's the body of Christ. And it's, we're going to look at this as we go into this. I believe this is all born-again believers. Look at what verse number 9 says. It says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us. Okay, this is a people that needed to be redeemed. Redeemed us to God by the blood through the cross, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. That sounds like the body of Christ. Um, verse 10 says this, And has made us unto our God kings, and notice this word, priests. Right? Made us kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Now that is an inheritance that is to come. But there's also, during today, right now, there's a spiritual inheritance that comes with the indwelling Spirit of God that lives within us. And you and I are called to show up to the battlefield that there, where there is a war waging. Now, in the hearts of other people, certainly, but can I tell you, in our hearts as we speak, we are submitting ourselves to the Lord to use us in any way He sees fit. And in response to our submission, what God does is, guess what He does? He gives us a spiritual Inheritance. He says, hey, I got something for you. Listen in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. See, my peace, that's a special peace. That's God's peace. Then he qualifies it, and he says, not as the world giveth. Don't get confused. This isn't an absence of conflict. This is a special peace with God. Give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So notice what the last part of that phrase says. It says, let not your heart... Be troubled, neither let it, your heart, be afraid. Jesus is referencing the spiritual battle that is taking place in the heart. He's talking about that war that's being waged within every one of us right now as we speak. You guys are sitting there going, listen, I am, I'm really listening. I'm really trying to listen. I'm really trying to focus. You know, I'm trying not to think about lunch because I am a little hungry. 
and we are going out to eat. And I am I know that I know that place and by that one burrito. Right? Because what happens? We get we get tracked, we get off track. And we start to think about other things. Who's ever read the Word of God and found yourself doing your laundry list for the day? Yeah, you're like, how did I end up over there? No, nah, I gotta get back on course. Right? And we're all struggling with this inside of our own hearts every day. God's calling us to a service and the world's calling us to something else. So we're constantly dealing with this strife within us, right? And this peace that God is referencing can be experienced here on earth. It is a spiritual inheritance that's available to all of us. But it takes that attitude of being dependent upon the Lord. It's a place of submission where God brings and fills us with His peace. We look and we go into Galatians chapter 5. And Galatians 5.16, it says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit. There's the command, right? And we've talked about this so many times. But this is the daily struggle. Walk in the Spirit, and the byproduct is, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Okay? So then now he's going to qualify. Now he's going to define for us the war. Here's the war. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary. These are the combatants. One to the other. They're in a conflict. The spiritual war. So you cannot do the things that you would. So it makes us ineffective when we're caught up in the battle, right? God's saying, hey, listen, you're here for a purpose. So those who are dependent upon God and submitted to his leading are victorious in the spiritual battle. They live and experience the peace of God that passeth all understanding. It doesn't even make sense. Their hearts are not troubled. Their hearts are not afraid. But you see, those people that are not submitted to God, those people that are not walking in the spirit, you know what they're plagued with? trouble. You know what they're plagued with? Fear. Everything in their life is turmoil. It's turned upside down. And Jesus says, listen, he says, if you have my peace, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it your heart be afraid. Listen, believers, all believers have access to God's peace. The reason why they don't experience it is because they're not walking in the Spirit. That is a choice. It is a choice, a designation, a, 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 a moment in time when we decide. Those, is, those, those Levites, whenever Moses cried out, they were in the crowd with everybody else and they went. Me. And see, there's a time in our hearts when we hear a similar call from His Word, from the pulpit, wherever, God saying, hey, who is on the Lord's side? And we have to decide. Me. Now, our problem is that we have no problem stepping up in service. Yes. Get out in the world. I think I'll slide back in the crowd. Because it's uncomfortable sometimes to be different than the world. It's uncomfortable to go to war. Right? There are people here that have served in the military that have risked all, that we have family members that died at war, fighting for what they believed in. And you know what? God's calling us to stand up to the spiritual battle that we are in every single day. Not to be overwhelmed by the forces of evil, but to stand against them. Because you recognize the fact that there are some that are submitted to God, submitted to His Spirit. They're dependent upon the Lord. And then there are others who are submitted to their flesh. They're submitted to the things of the world. They're dependent upon not God. They're dependent upon the things that they consume all day long. That's where they develop their identity. That's what has their hearts 
And then we wonder why we have fear. We wonder why we have trouble. And yet we're dependent upon the wrong thing. And so what we see with the Levites is a picture. If we take an honest assessment of ourselves, we can very quickly answer the question of where it is we are. We want to designate kind of which one we are. Are we dependent upon the world or are we dependent upon, upon God? Well, let's just sort of define some of the things that we might see. So those that are dependent upon the world. Well, these are the things that would eat, uh, consume their time. The news, social media, hobbies, sports, entertainment. There's nothing wrong with any of these things, by the way. But it's all a matter where they are. Discussions centered around relationships and emotions, but not grounded in the Word of God. Okay? People get very great at talking about relationships. My aunt this and my sister this. Worry. Bitterness. Frustration. Focusing time and attention on our troubles and our adversities. Impatience. Whew. Complaining. Right? These are the things of the world that consume much of people's days. Much of their waking hours are consumed with this stuff. How much are we devoting to these things? Okay? Jesus prayed for us in the battle. Okay? In John 17, 15, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays this. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but, so I didn't, don't take them out of the world. They need to be there. But that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Don't let them be consumed by the things of the world that are trying to get them. So we are to be in the world, God bless you, but not of the world. We're not supposed to sound like, look like, smell like, whatever, act like the world. Which means that you and I are supposed to be devoting our time and attention to the things of God. Let's define some of those that we might be able to recognize. Where do we spend our time? Study of God's Word. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, it does not say reading the word of God, because you can read the word of God and not study it. Right? You can read it, clip it off, man, I read three chapters today, boom, move on. Now, it didn't impact you necessarily. You didn't study it or go, why does it say this? And let me find out what's right. No, we just read it. So understand, there's a lot of people also, it says it rightly divides. What that warns us is that you can wrongly divide. That's why discipleship is important. That's why Wednesday nights are important. It's helping you to understand how to study the Word of God. Then this next one, honest, transparent, an honest, transparent, man, honest, transparent prayer life. What this means is we're not just running off a list of things. I've got this list I'm supposed to read, and I'm going to read it out loud. That's just me praying. Okay? This is an honest and a transparent prayer life. This is when you sit down with, like, let's say you, you have a, a close friend, and you say, you know what? I just need to open up and unload. I'm going to get real, and it's going to be dirty. And you're gonna, when we get done, you're going to be like, well, I need to take a shower. <laughs> but you know what? God, you know what's going on in me, and I just need to talk. I just need to unload my life. That's why he's there, right? Cast your care upon me, for I careth for you, right? That's the whole goal. How about this? Spiritually engaged church attendance. Not just showing up. People, there's some people, some, and I'm not pointing anybody in particular, but some people say like this and they're just like this. I mean, I could be on fire and they would just be like. <laughs> or they're like this. Ugh. 
spiritually engaged, man. That means you're here to grow. You're here to listen. You're here to allow the, God's Word to challenge your heart, right? This is important. Service to our community in the name of Christ. Is our life, is our church, are you in the name of Christ, are you touching the lives of people around you? Does your life make a difference? Are you making ripples in our community? Discipleship. Now, this is spiritual children as well as our physical children. Are we investing the Word of God into our personal physical kids? And are we also investing in those that God's put in our path? Spiritually grounded conversations. Conversations that we're having with individuals to deal with those issues and struggles, but looking for spiritual, biblical answers to the issues of life. They don't need your life experience. They don't need your wisdom. They need the Word of God. So get the Word of God into them. Evangelism. Sharing God's Word. Sharing the Gospel. Letting your life make a difference. Like uh, Christian music. Right? The Bible talks about uh, hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. Man, it, it, it speaks to your heart. If you listen to worldly music, uh, Corey and I have discipleship on Fridays. And it's one of the things he talked to me. He said, man, the music I used to listen to, I listen to it now and it makes my skin crawl. And it's amazing. Put good things in, man. Good things will come out, right? Very, very important. Uh, using our social media platform to promote the Lord. If you go through and you go, look at my feed. Let me see what it is that I post about. Well, if it's about my, my travel, it's about my kids, it's about my clothing, it's about my food. Man, look what I had for dinner. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? I don't care if you have burritos. It doesn't matter. But what if we use the same platform? God's given us a platform for a purpose. If you're going to be on there, why not try to have the gospel, something about the Lord, promote God's goodness? That's the key, right? We're so caught up in what everyone else does that we follow everyone else's patterns. And God's saying, no, that's not why I have you here. You're supposed to be a peculiar person. You're not supposed to look like everybody else. You're supposed to look like, like me. How about thankfulness, humility, patience, forgiveness, brotherly love? This is what our time should be devoted to. So if we're going to assess where we stand, look at the first list, things of the world. Look at the second list, things of God. And go, which one has the priority of time in my day? Which one really represents me? We must remember that God has us in this world to impact it for the glory of God, not for the world to impact us. Right? We go to Romans 12 too. What does that verse say? It says, and be not conformed to this world. Right? but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and, listen, acceptable and perfect will of God. That your life would make a difference, not that the world would make a difference in your life. Right? We're supposed to impact those around us, not allow them to impact us. Because, listen, God didn't give the Levites a physical inheritance because he wanted them to be fully reliant on him. Their inheritance was the beautiful relationship that they had with God. It was this fellowship that they had that no one else had. They were sanctified and set apart, and God said, you know what? I don't want anything to distract you. I don't want you to be worried about your possessions. I want this, us. I'm your possession. You are my possession. We're one. A spiritual connection that is beautiful and amazing. It's in this dependence upon God that our Lord wants us to emulate. For you see, that's what the Levites picture for us. Then verse 7 continues, and it gives us an example of those whose provision is going to come from the earth or from, from mankind. The second thing is those dependent upon man. Verse 7 said this, And Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond Jordan on the east. Understand that Canaan is in the west. 
which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. And so are the Levites, listen, who have consecrated themselves. They have made themselves acceptable in the sight of God. He's, he's taken them into this role. They are picturing for us a believer who is wholly reliant and dependent upon the Lord. But now we look at these eastern tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and they picture for us a believer who has placed their reliance in the provision of man. They're dependent upon the world. These are people that have chosen the things of the world over the things of God. I want you to consider the statement that they'll make. This is the eastern tribes. These guys back in the wilderness before they ever got to Canaan, this is what they said. Numbers 32, verses 19 through 23. For we will not inherit with them, with them. Notice this, they've separated themselves. We will not inherit with them on yonder side, Jordan, or forward. He says, because our inheritance has fallen to us on this side, Jordan, eastward. And Moses said unto them, if ye will do this thing, if ye will go armed before the Lord to war, and will go all of you armed over Jordan before the Lord, until he hath driven out his enemies from before him, and the land be subdued before the Lord, then afterward ye shall return and be guiltless before the Lord and before Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord." Do you hear how spiritual he's trying to make this sound? In those three phrases, he uses the Lord five times in that statement. Moses knows God's instructions that Canaan was not, that the outside of Canaan was not okay. God set aside that land specifically for those tribes. And what's happening is perhaps he's trying to convince himself through this statement. Listen, man, the Lord's in this, the Lord's in this, the Lord's in this, the Lord's in this. But in reality, Moses knows that it's not God's will. God's will and his instructions were that they would possess the promised land. They were to cross the Jordan. And these three, two and a half tribes have chosen to be on the other side. Now, if we go into Scripture and we look and we go, can we find any place where it says that God provided that land? Because we see Moses has got the Lord thrown in there a bunch of times. And you know what? I searched and I searched and I searched and I find 14 references and every single one of them says, and Moses gave them the land. Do you see what verse 7 says when we go back and look at it? And it says, uh, and Gad and the Reuben half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond Jordan on the east side, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. God makes certain to record for us that this was not God's decision. This was Moses' decision. And Moses places them, if we'll put the map up real quick. So here's the promised land. This is what God promised. And here's what they chose. This is the Jordan River that divides the two. They're really close to what God selected for them, but they're outside of God's will. This is God's will. This is the will of man. This is God's will. This is the will of man. So these chose, and they said, listen, we have the choice. We could receive what God has for us, but we choose that. Recognize the number 40 okay, in Scripture is a, is a number that symbolizes, represents testing or trial. Okay, it shows up 158 times in the King James Bible. And almost every single one of those is relating to some type of a trial. Think about when Jesus went into the wilderness. Not by coincidence that it's wilderness. But he was in the wilderness for 40 days. Right? Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days. Uh, Elijah 
When he fasted, guess what he fasted? For 40 days. They were in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. And during all of those, there are times of trial, there are times of testing. What's happening during that 40 years is, yes, God's getting the Egypt out of them. He's refining them. He's helping them develop their faith. They're learning to trust Him, to depend upon Him. He's providing the manna. He's providing the water. He's doing all these things. He's preparing them to enter into the promised land and helping them to develop in their faith. And so this purpose of the, of the trial in the 40, uh, that 40 years was to get them out of the wilderness and get them into Canaan. That was the whole goal. From the very beginning, he was straight up front with them. He said, this is the purpose and this is why you're going to be in the wilderness. This is the goal. And yet these at the end of everything are going to go, we still choose the wilderness. We still choose the wilderness. And guess what? Moses rubber stamped it. He approved. I could not find anywhere where it says anything except for Moses was the one that provided it. And what we find here is the fact that God is preparing the promised land for them. He did not want them to be near the promised land. He didn't want them to be beside the promised land. He says he wants them in the promised land. And yet these tribes decided that, you know what? We know better. Because we know our needs. I mean, we're, we're cattlemen. And this land is awesome for cattle. I don't think God knew that little detail. But we'll help him out, and we'll tell him, hey, Lord, you know, this is our plan. Moses, would you get on board with this? And you know what? They sell Moses on it, and to his shame, they convince him. And he agrees. And we know. Now, he knew God's will, and he uh, yet Moses considered, or conceded to their desire in contradiction to God's instructions. The, the, these two and a half eastern tribes are like so many Christians today who desire to identify themselves with the body of Christ. They want to be called Christian. They want to have the t-shirt. They want to have the bumper sticker. They want all that stuff. But they want it on their terms, not God's. Notice what it says in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 23. This is because that when they knew God, okay, these people know God. When they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Okay? They glorified Him not as God. They glorified self. They glorified their desires over God's desires. These are Christians that have created their own version of God in their hearts. Worship a version of God that's okay with some sin. There's some areas you know where He's okay with it. Who's socially relevant and understanding when it comes to adapting His Word to fit the morality of the day. This is a God that many people worship. His love is so great that He not only accepts everyone, but he also accepts everything that humanity deems to be okay. If you like it, he likes it too. Because you know what? He's a God of love. He would never judge sin. That would be hurtful. No, no, no. He loves you. Verse number 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. The truth was no longer the truth. The truth became hate speech. Right? And now, the morality of the day is the truth. In fact, I get to define my own truth. This is my truth. You know, when I read the Bible, this is what it says to me. I don't care. <laughs> we don't care what it says to you. We know what it says. That's the goal. You follow what the Word says. These are the modern-day theologians who are not teaching the God of the Bible. They're teaching the God of man. Verse 23 says this, And changed, this is the key word, changed the glory 
of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to, bir and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. It's talking about taking the God who's outside of our reality and pulling him into the laws of man and shaping a God that looks like us, who has the same limitations, the same angers and all this stuff. And they go, oh, why would God do this? Why would he do this? Because you know what? God says, my ways are not your ways. You're never going to understand me. It's an impossibility. Right? It's an impossibility. You'll never be able to perceive what it is that I'm doing. It's like an ant trying to figure out why it is you're doing what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. They would have, there's just no way for them to fathom it. And God says, I'm so far beyond where you are, you'll never understand. But you have to trust. Right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We're trusting in a God that has a purpose and a plan for everything. And so when we face adversities, instead of going, why would God? And, I th and we start judging him, which is insane. Right. We're trying to bring him down so we can go, I have the right. You need to prove yourself to me, and I'm going to judge your actions. And God goes, do you not realize I created you, and I could make you disappear like that? <laughs> but because of his amazing grace, right, he allows us to have a free will because he wants a love relationship with us. And God lets us reason all this stuff out. But you know what? He gave us answers to everything. If we will study to show thyself approved, guess what? You can find the answers to the questions of life. So what we see here is this is a version of God they create that is similarities to, has similarities to the God of the Bible, only with some changes to make him more relevant and to make him more relatable. They preach and live a Christianity that is similar to our faith and the fact that they will mention Jesus' name and they will point to the cross. They're all about salvation. But it's that sanctification part. It's that sanctification. We're setting ourselves away from the world, being separated from the world where the struggle is. You see, the two and a half tribes, what do they picture for us? They picture those that go, I'm going to get right up to the line, but I'm not coming out of the world. God, I'll be so close that you're going to think I'm part of the group. If you don't notice to pay attention to the Jordan River, you'll think that we're all just one big happy family. Oh, but there's something in between us. The dividing line. God said, if you're going to commit yourself to me, you're going to cross the Jordan and make this your home. But they said, no. We'll cross the Jordan. We'll help our brothers get this. But we want this for us because we know. We know what's better. For you see, they're not willing to be dependent upon God and trust in his plan for them. Because their mindset is, we know better. God, you don't understand. That book is antiquated. You don't understand. The morality that it talks about, I can't even relate to it. This is not the world that I grow up in, God. Do you not know what's going on in the world and the culture that I'm facing right now? Do you not know? Do I have to instruct you? Don't you, can't you update this thing, for goodness sakes? Sadly, it's been updated over 450 times in English. But you know what? He tells us that he changes not. It's not about changing the world or changing us or changing God to, meet, to, to be like the world. It's about changing the world to be more like God. See, that's the whole thing. It's a shaping process. And see, God shapes us. And when we're hard-headed, guess what? The shaping is uncomfortable. Who's ever been through some stuff where you're just like, dude, I just, uh, man, oh man, the weight, the power, the strength of God's hands upon us as that clay that fights to stay, that lump, and God's going, no, 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 I'm going to make you into something beautiful. But it's going to take some pressure. It's going to take some shaping. And I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to make you something new. And man, the more we surrender, the more we become that vessel that God intends to use us. But it takes work. And we have to show up on the battlefield. 
And we've got to be willing to take some slings and arrows. Now, if you're armored up, guess what? It all bounces off. But if your shield's left in the closet and your armor's half hanging off and your helmet's like this or you've got it backwards like a whatever, you know. <laughs> if you look the fool and you go out, guess what? You're going to get shot all to pieces. And you know what's amazing about God? Is if you'll come back to him, he'll pull out the arrows, he'll patch up our holes, he'll cinch up our armor, he'll get us restored, and he'll say, okay, here's the battle plan. Be righteous. Be holy. Don't let the world get your heart. You focus on me. Go take your place on the battlefield. Hold your shield. Be ready. Because they're going to come. But it won't be your strength that will defeat them. It'll be mine. Just stand your ground. Just stand your ground. That's all God's asking of us. Just stand your ground. And we struggle to do so because we're so caught up in ourselves. And what happens with these Christians that that are living in the world? 2 Timothy 3.5 describes it this way. Having a form of godliness. They're not ungodly. They just have a form of godliness. Their own version. But deny the power thereof. See, the power is this. God speaks to us and says, this is who I intend for you to be. And we go, ah, I'll take part of that. But I'm going to adapt it to fit my lifestyle. That's denying the power thereof. We're having a form of godliness. And it says, from such turn away. See, this type of Christianity is widespread in our day and age. This is the modern day Christian, right? It's super appealing to people. You know why? Because it makes provision for the flesh. It makes it comfortable to be doing things that are wrong. Because everyone else is doing it, guess what? It doesn't seem that bad. And if you really don't know God's Word, and the Word of God's not really preached to you, well then guess what? You can continue with this veil over your eyes, and you can go out in there and just, you know what? Hey, live like in la-la land. And guess what? The devil's thrilled because you're not a threat to him. You're not going to share your faith. And the life that you live is so distorted from what God's actually telling you to be, they're not going to recognize God in what you're doing. No, they're not going to see it at all. Now, obviously, I'm not preaching to you guys. You guys are you're doing great. You're doing awesome. But you're going to interact with people that are these kind of Christians. And they're going to think, you know what? Man, we're doing amazing. And this type of Christianity with this version of God allows people to drink sumptuously from the cup of the world and call themselves followers of Christ. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. If you want to know if you're a follower of God, how many fish are you going in? How many lines are you casting every day? How many nets are you casting with the gospel? How many opportunities are you using your life through your actions, through your, through your godliness to draw people to the boat? Or are we so focused on ourselves, we don't have any hooks on the water. We're tangled up on the net ourselves. We don't do anything. Follow me. And the result will, I will make you fishers of men. So as we're evaluating ourselves, let's consider how many we're drawing the boat. How's our life making a difference? Jesus, or the Lord speaks to us about the battle in Romans 13, and I'm almost done. Romans 13, verses 12 through 14. It says, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off 
the works, notice this, of darkness. He knows who we are. He knows we're caught up in it. He knows I've got darkness hanging off my elbows. Right? He's going, ah, get out of that stuff. Shake off the world, Dave. Because guess what? I have something else for you. And let's put on the armor of light. You're in the darkness, not to be consumed by the darkness. You need to cast it off, and I want you to put on the armor of light. You armor up. You set your heart on the things of God. Live a godly and righteous life. Set yourself, sanctify yourself, stand and represent like those Levites. Be different amongst the people. And man, oh man, you're going to shine as a light in the darkness. Verse 13, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and in envying, but put ye on. You want what the armor looks like? Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be a Christian, a real Christian. And he says, and make not provision for the flesh. Modern-day Christianity does nothing but makes provision for the flesh. How can I be in the world and be a Christian as well? You can't. You can't. Make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. If the world has your heart, hey, guess what? You're like most Christians in the world, but it's not who we're called to be. Right. We can continue on that path, and the devil can sit back and smile because our life doesn't make much of a ripple in the world, or we can say, no, no, no. Who is on the Lord's side? And those Levites said, me, me. Of all my brethren, see that I stand for God. And you know what God said? He said, take swords and go slay those men that stood against me. And the violence that separated you from me that took place with Levi because it was done in the flesh, this will be for God and you will stand for me. Amen. You decide. Take a stand. And it comes down to this. God's given us a clear delineation of two different pictures. We see the Levites and we see the, the Eastern tribes. And the question is, we have to all ask ourselves, which picture? Which picture are you? Every day, we get to choose. The world is watching. The world is watching, and that's what matters. What I think doesn't matter. But buddy... If you stand out and you offer hope to a broken world and that armor of light shines while people are consumed with darkness, they will come to you and you can offer them hope. Man, we are at a crucial time in our nation and our world's history. And time grows short. If there was ever a time in our lives when we need to stand out and say that we are on the Lord's side, it's now. Amen. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, um, there's a call to all of us today. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for my own heart. God, as the world grabs at our attention, is it tries desperately to get a hold of us. Help us see it for what it is. Help us, Lord, to set our hearts and our affections upon being godly, upon being righteous, upon being Christ-like. God, you set us an example of how it is we should live. We're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. Yes. But Lord, when we make a mistake, help us get back on track. 
Help us to set our hearts and our, our, our focus on things above, not on things on the earth. God, the devil's active and he knows our weaknesses. He's been watching us all of our lives. He knows what lures, what temptations to use against each one of us. And it's not a coincidence that the same things happen again and again and again and again. But God, you know what? If we'll surrender to you, you said, submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. God, you give us the power to be victorious. If we'll just surrender. So God, I pray for my brothers and sisters, for all of us. We're all fighting the same battle. Lord, I pray that you'd help us as we surrender. Lord, to experience your presence, your power, and Lord, your purpose, that you'd use these lives for your glory. God, I pray for those that will go out in the world today. And when we leave these doors, God, help us not lose, lose sight of who it is we, we know where to be. Help us choose and then help us to stand. With their heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, listen, I don't know where I stand with God per se. Look, 22 years ago, somebody asked me a question. They asked me if I died today, if I knew for sure I'd go to heaven. And I honestly just did not know. I said, I hope so. And I was based upon the person that I was. I thought if I'm good enough, there's no one good enough. The Bible says for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. We're all, we're all lost. We're all in trouble. We all need a savior. God gave the 10 commandments to reveal to us the fact that we were all, we'd all fallen short. And in recognizing that we have sin, Jesus Christ came to this earth and he died for the sins of the world. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, every one of us. Right? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He offers a way out through putting faith and trust in his finished work on the cross. We don't have to be a good person. We don't have to be in a church. There's no requirements of anything. There's no religious works. There's nothing. It's nothing more than a matter of faith to receive the gift of God. Jesus offers salvation from the cross to this world. In order to receive it, all we have to do is choose like the Levites, make a choice. And in that moment, if you receive Christ as your Savior, He will change your eternity, but it will also start changing your heart and helping you to become more godly. So if you've never received Christ, truly received Him, you're watching this online or listening to it recorded, here's your opportunity to receive that gift. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, just simply repeat after me. There's no words, there's no magic in the words, and there will be no, there's no ceremony involved. This is your heart speaking to God's heart. The words are a formality. But we'll let me have you pray in your heart and mind and repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have failed you. I failed my family. And I failed myself. And I am sorry. But right now, I realize what I've done. And I also understand that there's a penalty for my sin, an eternal separation from you. With my whole heart, I'm asking you right now to forgive me of my sins, to pay my debt, and Lord, offer me a new life with you. God, I'm asking you to save my soul and give me a home in heaven. Thank you for being with me. Thank you for speaking to me. Thank you for drawing me, and thank you for saving me. I will see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.